everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. I'm really excited about this episode, actually. Uh, It's with Dr. Tom O'Brien, who is a colleague and a friend of mine for, I would say, over a decade now. And, um, you know, you probably know his work around gluten and autoimmune disease. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about something slightly different, but yet, of course, it's very related. And it's brain health brain function, cognition, how do you fix your brain? So in this podcast, we're going to talk about lots of different things. We're going to talk about breathing. We're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about the connection to the mind and spirit. We're going to talk about electromagnetic fields and flying and travel, all of these things and how they impact the brain. And then we close with Dr. Tom's takeaway on some simple things that he does in his everyday life to keep his brain protected. So here you go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Tom O'Brien. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure always to interact with you in any format possible. You know, I always enjoy our conversations. It just always feels, you know, both you and I are from the Midwest, and so I kind of feel like we have this kind of this sense of trust in that steady eddy salt of the earth kind of feeling whenever we talk. So <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And I think that we both have come out of Midwest mediocrity. You know, which is <laughs> such a a pervasive uh uh aura in the Midwest is just go go with the flow and certainly when we're talking about brain function, we can't go with the flow of, of the information that's out there. Well, or we have to have a different flow, like omega-3s and bringing in some different kinds of flow, right? I like your use of the word flow. That's a really... And what's interesting based on flow is that you and I have both moved towards the West Coast. Well, you're actually very global right now, but um, you and I both have a home base on on the West Coast now. So it's just interesting to see that gravitational pull. Yes, comrades, you know, uh, (laughs) fellow... We go way back. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I remember sitting in conversations with you and Jeff Bland and, um, you know, just interesting mapping out the future. And here we are probably yes. a decade later. And so it's it's just it's great. It's I have so much um, appreciation for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. And I for you I for you. And it, it is a decade. It was 2008 that oh I goodness. did that wow. I did 26 uh, full day, eight hour seminars uh, hosted by Metagenics for on the conundrum of gluten sensitivity. That's what really launched us into the larger sphere. And that was 2008. Oh my goodness. Wow. What a great memory you have. Yeah, it was a pivotal moment. And I do remember Jeff Bland being very supportive of your path on autoimmune function. And so, yeah, you, you really did an excellent job of bringing that to the forefront for the public. Yes, thank you. So now you're on a different frontier. And before we get into what that is, um, I have a very pressing question. 
Okay. Okay, you ready for this? Okay. <laughs> I'd like to know what your favorite color is. Oh. Uh, well, uh, I, I guess that depends. Um, today I'd say lavender. Oh, my. That is beautiful. I don't think I've ever, ever, ever had any guests that have said lavender. Uh, I believe I had somebody that said ultraviolet. Uh, wow, lavender is such a spiritual color. Exactly. You know, mm. an elevating spiritual color, yes. Yeah, nice. Wonderful. Well, it tells me where we're going then um, based on your color in the moment. It sounds like we're going to have a, a practical yet a more high-level interconnecting type of conversation. Satnamji. <laughs> well, and it makes sense based on uh, when I look at your your next book um, and, and what it's titled, We Are Going Up. We're going up into the brain. Yes. And so uh, you've been gracious uh, to gift me with uh, a pre-copy of, of your manuscript, which is called You Can Fix Your Brain. And I want to ask you, you know, just uh, colleague to colleague here, friend to friend, um, you know, I, I thought that you might be writing about autoimmune disease. And I was a little surprised to see you venturing into this whole frontier of brain function. But I know that based on what I've read that there's an intersection there. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how did you segue into brain health and how does that overlap onto everything else that you've been doing with autoimmunity? Oh, thank you. That's a that's a very uh, uh, comprehensive and penetrating question and and it's it's just excellent. So the autoimmune fix that came out two years ago, um, the basic premise was there is a mechanism that develops years ahead of time before anyone gets diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And it's referred to as the spectrum of autoimmunity. And um, so in that book, we talked about, and also in the docuseries, Betrayal was for the same purpose, which was to, to realize that it's what we're exposed to, that when your immune system is highly activated uh, and attacking your own tissue, it's a side effect of an activated immune system trying to protect you most of the time. Your immune system's trying to protect you. So if you ask the question, what's it trying to protect you from? And as you look into the literature, we find that it's the environmental toxins that we're exposed to, which includes what's on the end of your fork, because that's in the outside world, so that's part of the environment. Uh, it includes bacteria. Um, I just read a paper this morning on the molecular mimicry mechanisms of uh, when your immune system is fighting streptococcus, how because of molecular mimicry, your immune system, those antibodies to streptococcus may attack your joints, the collagen in your joints, and you develop rheumatoid arthritis. And it's really a reaction to a strep infection that causes that. And there are many, many examples of that. Uh, I was at the uh, uh, Autoimmunity Congress in Lisbon just this last May, and Professor Alan Ebringer from King's College in London, and he's the guy, 1978, I'm in my first genetics course, 1978, and the instructor comes in really excited. He's got this research paper in his hand. He's really excited because this is the first example of molecular mimicry that he's seen printed. 
And it was uh, Professor Ebringer, when he was a graduate student, writing about uh, an immune response that if you carry the gene, the gene HLA-B27, if you happen to have that gene, about a third of the population does, and if you have an infection to Klebsiella pneumoniae, if you have an overgrowth, Klebsiella pneumoniae, one of the most common bacteria that people get in hospitals that cause pneumonia, very common, you are at risk of developing an autoimmune disease, ankylosing spondylitis. And this was the first uh, paper that I'd ever heard of on molecular mimicry. And so fast forward to the Autoimmunity Congress in Lisbon, and here's Professor Ebringer, who is on uh, betrayal. Uh, so I'd interviewed him just a year earlier. Professor, and he said, hello, Tom, how are you? And I said, good, good to see you here. So Tom, I'm giving this presentation on Sunday. You must attend, you must be in the audience. Of course I'll be there. And he gave a paper on, um, I think it was 30 or 35, I don't remember the number, MS patients and that every single one of them had elevated antibodies to Proteus, a bacteria called Proteus, every single one of them. And he, he ran, in the, ran tests in the laboratory to see that there were a couple of the enzymes in the Proteus bacteria that are very similar to the uh, structure of myelin. Mm -hmm. And so that... If you make antibodies to Proteus, and if you have the genetic vulnerability, you may make antibodies to myelin, elevated antibodies, which is the mechanism of MS. Mm -hmm. And he just presented that. So that's the, the, that was the concept of the autoimmune fix and betrayal, was that whole world of how the environment has so much to do with the, the uh, uh, development of these diseases that we get. Now, fast forward to you can fix your brain, and the message is very similar. It's that it's the environment that we're exposed to that contributes substantially to what eventually becomes brain dysfunction, and which can then progress into brain dis-ease, which then progresses into a, a diagnosis of a brain disease. Mm. You know, uh, Tom, I remember years ago there was a survey that came out when you're saying about brain disease and kind of connecting the dots to how you got here. This is a huge concern for people. There, there was a survey that was done, I think it was probably 2009, and up at the top of the list of people's concerns was not even cancer, but it was mental acuity. It was mental sharpness. 65% of people had some concern about this. So... You know, Deanna, you're absolutely right. Um, everyone knows someone that had a heart attack and they survived and they started exercising, changed their diet, and they look great. They're, they feel better than they felt in years. Everyone knows someone, or most of us know someone that was diagnosed with cancer and went through the recommended protocols. It's in remission and they're doing great. No one knows anyone diagnosed with a brain disease who's doing great. Uh -huh. And so that's a primary fear. And quite honestly, that's why this book is about the brain is because uh, from the platform of the autoimmune fix, we could do a book, I could do a book on brain, I could do a book on joints, I could do a book on skin, and just carrying forward how the environment, what we're exposed to, is manifesting in that part of the body. And that's what this book is about, is about the brain, and how to identify what's causing 
the inflammation, and then what do you do about it? So let's get into that. That's intriguing to me because if we know the root cause, we know what we can do about it. You have this really great graphic in the book with uh, a number of different things. It's it's 3D in structure and it's four things that you address. And it yeah. lists electromagnetic field, mindset, biochemistry, and structure. So when you're talking about environment, you've mentioned that a couple of times. Is this what you're referring to? These These four different areas of our lives and how each of them could impact brain function? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm referring to. And the mind-spirit is the internal environment um, and sometimes referred to, well, the the, uh, uh, term endotoxin means toxins inside your body. And that's usually more of what's produced by uh, the, the on the biochemical side, but I think of endotoxin also as our thought processes and uh, uh, how we look at life and how that can have so much to do with whatever brain concerns we have. Okay, so you know, I love the fact that you're talking about mindset, and obviously, you know what I'm into. You know, I'm very keen on talking about mindset, mindfulness, and the experience of the inner landscape. You know, there was a paper that uh, I'm going to send to you because it's it's so intriguing. It's talking about how you have a meal and how that meal needs to be evaluated in the context of the exposome. So if you have a person with a, a negative, pessimistic outlook, and then you have another person with a positive, uplifting, flourishing life and healthy social networks, and you give them the same meal, it's going to be evaluated in the body differently. Absolutely. So I want you to talk about that as it relates to brain function, too, because uh, some of the research I'm seeing suggests that eating fruits and vegetables, phytonutrients, phytochemicals, that all of this is impacting not just our physiology, but also our psychology. When we um, uh, eat uh, rainbow colors of fruits and vegetables, and that's a primary uh, component of our meal selections, we, we have a lower inflammatory index, if I can use that term. I don't know that I've heard that term before, but I'm going to make it up. Uh, so that we have less inflammation. When you have less inflammation, the body always wants to go towards parasympathetic dominance, the relaxed state, the, the more comfortable flow of life. You know, this is a really important point in physiology that Hans Selye taught us so many years ago, that the sympathetic nerves, the fight, flight, or fright nervous system, the ones designed to protect your life from saber-toothed tigers, you know, we, we have the same bodies as our ancestors thousands of years ago. And so the sympathetic nerves are, for example, the size of your baby finger. They're much smaller than that, but for an analogy here, the parasympathetic nerves, the more relaxed and mellow, everything's great, beautiful outlook in life, and you know life is good, are the size of your thumb. And that's because there's much less ins- insulation around the sympathetic nerves. Um, there's more nerve, whereas in the parasympathetics, there's a whole lot of insulation. And any electrician will tell you that the flow of a current is slowed down the more insulation that's on a wire. So the parasympathetic nervous 
parasympathetic nervous system is a little slower in carrying the message out, still very, very fast. Uh, but slow. the sympathetic is lightning speed, less insulation, faster transmission. Why? Because if there's a, a growl behind you and it's a saber-toothed tiger, you better jump really quick. So you have to have the nervous system that's going to carry the message from the brain to the body to the muscle say, get out of there quick. So that's the sympathetic nervous system. Now, you take how we live our lives today, and the parasympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that's running when we are doing deep breathing. We've got relaxed muscles, a slow heart rate, uh, uh, great peripheral vision, you know, uh, just uh, brain, we, we can daydream, you know, we, we've got visionary capabilities in terms of thinking about our future and coming up with new ideas. The sympathetic nervous system, the fight, flight, or fright, has a far, fast heart rate, short, quick breathing, <laughs> no deep breaths, muscles really tight, so lots of blood there so you can run really fast. Not much blood out to the skin in case you get cut in the fight when you're fighting for your life. So there's not as much blood out on the skin. It's designed to save your life. When we have these thoughts, if we're living in a negative state, if we're living in a state where uh, we feel threatened and we're defensive, that's a sympathetic dominant state. And so the entire body, there's no negotiation. This is a fight, flight, or fright. This is a save your life immune system. It overrides, not immune system, nervous system. It overrides the parasympathetic. The sympathetic is dominant. If it gets activated, it overrides everything to save your life. And then you can't think. And then the brain goes haywire and, you know, you're, exactly. everything's just out of sync, right? You know, exactly. uh, one of the intriguing parts of physiology is, thank you for that beautiful way to contextualize the parasympathetic and the sympathetic under the autonomic nervous system. You know, the heart and the brain are so interconnected. And as you mentioned, the breath, I began thinking about how breath is such an easy thing that we can do. We've actually have to do it. So if we're able to get into the breath, it almost seems like that's a way to really synchronize the heart and the brain and to bring our autonomic nervous system into balance. Is that you know, this, something you talk is, about? Yeah. Yeah. This is our, our friend, Dr. Pedram Shojai, in his last book, um, he had this great exercise that was just an eye opener for me. And for all of our listeners here, this just try this for one day. And notice what happens towards the end of the day. And he said, set your alarm to ring every waking hour for one day. As soon as you wake up, every waking hour. From that, when that alarm goes off, just pause wherever you are. If you're driving, of course, keep driving. But just turn off the music for a moment. And take five deep breaths. Just count Five deep breaths. So it would be mm, I'm doing it with one. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two. And it'll take you fifteen seconds. Just try this for one day. And then you're done. Then go go back to your computer, whatever you're watching your show, whatever it is. But then 
the next hour it goes off, take five deep breaths. Just don't, don't do anything else, just five deep breaths. And notice towards the end of the day what your outlook is on life how you're feeling about this day compared to how you felt when you woke up this morning. You've got a bigger picture. You're more in a parasympathetic dominant state because you're breathing the way we're designed to breathe. Just 10 seconds out of every waking hour for one day and notice what happens. And most of us aren't going to continue to do that for the rest of our lives, but we we will develop an awareness that when you're keyed up, you might say, oh, I'm just gonna take five breaths. I love and it. Yeah, and you'll have a tool that mm-hmm. you use. Mm-hmm. And you know, what the research shows, because I've done a bit of uh, study on mind-body medicine and meditation, is that the more that we ritualize or get our body in that groove of awareness, as you speak to, yes. the, the easier our body goes there. Yes. So, and, and if we just do it once in a while, it's harder for the body to remember it's almost a different form of molecular mimicry. You know, it's some kind of a, an epigenetic tag where we can go there faster if we're making it more of a part of our routine. So I'm so yeah. glad that you mentioned that. that that's so important. Oh, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you're building a bicep muscle and you're pumping a little weight to build the bicep muscle, your baseline goes up. Your bicep muscle is stronger. So if you're building your base of meditation or quiet time or prayer or deep breathing where you're working it regularly, your baseline goes up to where you're in a parasympathetic dominant state more often. Right. Yeah. Great analogy. I like that. So just to get back for a second to uh, the four that you talk about in You Can Fix Your Brain, EMFs, biochemistry, structure, and mindset. I feel like we just did a great job of, uh, you did a great job of going into mindset very nicely uh, in terms of connecting with the nervous system, developing awareness. I feel like a hot topic for so many people, and I get lots of questions on this, is around electromagnetic fields. And I'm really curious to get your thoughts on the brain. You know, I have an uncle who died of uh, brain cancer at 35. He was a, uh, a traveling salesperson, and so he was in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was in his car with one of those brick phones, and he developed a tumor just right above his the ear that he held the phone right by. And yeah. although we don't know that there's any proof, it's just kind of like, well... You kind of look at the association and what was he doing on that side of the head and so talk with us a bit more about emfs you know how do we avoid these things can we can we take precautions what can we actually do and what do these things do to our brain yeah you bet well the the first thing um um about there's no proof that it causes tumors that's the scapegoat answer that the industry uses And they're absolutely right. There's no way to show that the amount of radiation from a phone next to your brain is going to cause a tumor. There's no way to show that. However, it's the accumulative assault of all of the electromagnetics that we're exposed to over the day. You know, you just turn on your phone. People who live in a condo or if you're in a restaurant you're in a shopping center, turn on your phone and just look at how many different wireless networks there are that your phone says are here and it could connect to. That's hitting your brain. So if we were doing studies with eight or 10 different 
frequencies of electromagnetic radiation coming at the tissue, there would be different results than when you do a single frequency uh, coming at a tissue. So that's, you know, the, the whole thing about the industry defending itself, uh, I, I just want to stay in that for a moment because it's so important. Uh, of course, there's back in the early 1950s, and I've got the cartoon that was in one of the newspapers that said, uh, um, the government says there's absolutely no problem with uh, above ground atomic testing in Nevada, right? Absolutely no problem. And, uh, the, and the government assured us of that. That was in the 1950s. And in the 1960s, uh, the picture in the New York Times, very famous picture called the Seven Dwarfs. Mm. It was, it was the, seven, the heads of the seven tobacco industries standing before Congress with their hands over their heart taking the oath to tell the truth. And we know later they lied a lot uh, about the effects of smoking that um, the industry is always going to tell us things are okay. And so we can't trust that. And we have to look to the science, which you do so well. And, you know, in functional medicine, we emphasize that, um, basing our recommendations off of the science. So, but in terms of wireless, what can you do to reduce your electromagnetic radiation? Well, I've been talking for years. On, whenever I'm on an airplane, you know, you get tired of sitting after a while and you fly more than I do, Deanna. But so you you know this. You know, you get up and you walk around a little bit, uh, and you talk. To, I talk to the flight attendants, and uh, we talk about the uh, electromagnetic radiation coming from solar flares, and these these explosions on the sun. When you see National Geographic's about the sun, you see these big atomic explosions on the sun all the time, producing a tremendous amount of radiation that just goes out into space and the radiation that comes towards Earth. When you're at 35,000 feet in an airplane, you're in an aluminum tube. You know, you're not in steel that uh, blocks radiation or lead that blocks radiation. You're in aluminum. And the radiation exposure at 35,000 feet is so much higher than at um, uh, sea level. And depending on the solar flare cycle, it's an 11-year cycle, and it peaks and it tapers down, it peaks again 11 years later, and it tapers down. So these 11-year cycles, if you're at the peak of a, an 11-year cycle, when you fly from New York to Los Angeles, you're getting the equivalent of seven chest x-rays worth of radiation every time you fly. And the flight attendants know this. And at the low point of that curve, that 11-year curve, it's one to two chest x-rays every time you fly. That's how much radiation we're being exposed to when we're on a plane. And there's not much that you can do when you're on the plane, but I, I've told my flight attendants and my pilot patients for years, for three days before and three days after your flight, you're taking triple the amounts of antioxidants and polyphenols. You're having more um, nutrients in your smoothies. That you've gotta take a lot more nutrient to act as sponges to absorb the free radicals that are caused by the radiation exposure. And say, well, I fly four times a week. You're going to take a lot of nutrients. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
That's brilliant. You know, you and I are definitely on the same wavelength on that. I think it's it's not just about the flying, but it's about what happens before and what happens after. And a friend of mine mentioned that he had a radiation counter on the plane with him at different times, different kinds of flights, and he noticed that during the daytime, the radiation was, of course, much higher than when he flew at night. And so one of the things that I've been thinking, just even for myself, is to schedule more late afternoon or early morning flights when the sun is not at its peak. So That's that we really don't a get good point. The, yeah, you know, it's just a simple some, thing. Someone asked me, someone asked me a while ago, um, is there less radiation at night? And I said, I don't really know. Because I don't know if the electromagnetic waves travel at the same speed as the light waves. Mm. And I just don't know. But yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that's, that's true. Yeah, you know, I'd like to actually get that radiation counter myself. Uh, you can buy one just from Amazon. It's not very expensive. It's under a hundred dollars, and you just bring it with you on the plane. And it just—it's like a—it's like a Gauss meter, but it's a radiation meter. Meter, and so if you just look at that and get it, then you can do your own test, really, and look at all different kinds of scenarios too. That's a brilliant idea, and well worth doing, just as an experiment, so that um, our listeners can learn what you're exposed to, because. You don't know when you're being exposed to electromagnetic radiation. You don't feel anything. Right. You can't mm -hmm. tell. Mm -hmm. You can't tell, but it's causing damage. It's always causing damage. And so if you explore, you know, I started back in the late 80s, I think it was, um, having a uh, 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 radiation frequency meter that I would give to patients to take home to check their house, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, because you know, mice chew up wiring and yeah. there, there may be some leakage in, inside the wall. Or if your child's bedroom is on the other side of the wall where the colored big, big screen TV is, mm -hmm. that radiation goes right through the wall into your child's bedroom. And if your kid's got attention deficit, you want to know if there's any electromagnetic pollution in their room. Would... What are they being exposed to? And I tell all of our patients, take the alarm clock away from the nightstand next to your head, yeah. put it over on the dresser, and the, the patients say, well, I'll have to get out of bed and turn it off. I said, that's the idea. <laughs> and plus, let's, <laughs> let's move away from using alarm clocks anyway, and yeah. uh, you know, just that sense of time, when, if at all possible. I mean, yes. it's so jarring to back to the sympathetic nervous system, it just riles us up. You know, Tom, I'm just wondering, you know, um, for people reading your book, You Can Fix Your Brain, um, which, again, I love it because it's very physically oriented, it's practical, it's kind of like, do this and you'll get a better brain, and there are so many things we can do. I'm kind of wondering, you know, now in retrospect after you writing the book, say somebody comes to you and they start having some signs of cognitive impairment. Let's just say, wow, they, they are forgetting names, they're not remembering numbers as well, you know, they're just noticing some subtle things. What's your clinical process? Like, how do you take them down that trajectory of healing their brain? No, no question, no question. And that's a great, that's, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, you know, I was married just under two years ago. And uh, for our honeymoon, we went to Costa Rica for six weeks. And, you know, I, I can work anywhere as long as I have a good Internet. And so we were working there and just having a wonderful time. I read 93 research papers on the blood-brain barrier. <laughs> 90, 93. <laughs> so, you know, 
<laughs> Only? <laughs> Just joking. My honeymoon. Just joking. Uh, my honeymoon. Yeah, because <laughs> my, my, my wife loves me for who I am. Oh, you know, boy. I'm a geek, and you know, I get such <laughs> juice out of this stuff. And I mean, we had a great time. It was it's a lifelong memory, and all of that. And I, I made sure that she was as thrilled to be there and having a wonderful time as I was. Um, but 93 research papers on the blood-brain barrier. And in the book, you will read that I coined a term that I hope becomes common vernacular within the next year, both for healthcare practitioners and for the general public. And that is capital B number four, B4. And B4 stands for a breach of the blood-brain barrier. And uh, we know about leaky gut, there's leaky brain. And every brain deterioration condition, as far as I know, uh, not every, there's two that are nutrient deficiencies of salt, but aside from that, almost every brain deterioration condition has inflammation as a mechanism that's causing the brain dysfunction. Inflammation is an activated immune system What's your immune system activated for? What's it trying to do? What's it trying to protect you from? And so it's something had to get through the leaky brain. And when you read the, the book and you see the studies on this, it makes perfect sense. So after reading this, I talked to a laboratory and they agreed to do this. And so we now have a test. It's called the Neural Zoomer. N-E-U-R-A-L, Neural Zoomer. And you can just Google it or come on my website and download some information and take it to your doctor and say, hey, can we do this neural zoomer? Because it looks at 18 markers of a brain on fire. And you, it's, a, it's a great screen to tell. So that's the first thing I do is to find out what are we dealing with here? Mm -hmm. And once you find that out, then it gives you a clue. And for full disclosure, when I recommend this to patients, I also recommend they do the wheat zoomer. And that's the most comprehensive test on uh, uh, wheat-related disorders that's available on the market today. Very comprehensive, and 97 to 99% sensitivity, 98 to 100% specificity, which you just don't hear in laboratory medicine. You know, that's so unusual. Mm. But um, this laboratory has got the technology to do that. And what that means is it's right all the time, almost time. It's right on the money. So I recommend the wheat zoomer and the neural zoomer, and the wheat zoomer also tests for intestinal permeability, all in the same test. So we're looking at intestinal permeability, that's the leaky gut. We're looking at sensitivity to wheat, which is a primary culprit for inflammation producing mechanisms in the gut and thus in the body. And we're looking at not only the blood-brain barrier, but antibodies to your brain. And so we, that's our starting point. Um, of course, there are symptoms and what they're noticing, but you don't feel when you've got elevated antibodies to your cerebellum, for example. You don't feel that. You can't feel anything there. So what do you do if you find that? Let's just take that example. You find elevated antibodies to the cerebellum. You start finding that when you do the neural zoomer that you're getting a positive read. What are action steps that you typically take? Are there certain things that you do for everybody? And then are there more targeted steps that you just do for some people based on their markers? Because I'm always, a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a really good question. Really good question. And so I'm going to give you a visual because it helps with the answer. And then I'll give you the answer. Perfect. So the visual is 
When you go in to see your doctor and you've been diagnosed with diabetes or you've been diagnosed with uh, epilepsy or attention deficit or depression, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, uh, but you're coming to a functional medicine practitioner to look for some options as to what you can do. It's like you've fallen over a waterfall and you've crashed into the pond below. You know, you swim up to the surface and <laughs> you spit out the water. You know, you're, oh, God, thank God I'm alive. Wow, wow, thank God I'm alive. And you're trying to stay afloat in this pond of diabetes or this pond of depression. You're trying to stay afloat. But the water is so turbulent because the waterfall keeps falling into the water. So it's really turbulent water. You're still living the lifestyle that caused the problem. But you're trying to stay afloat here. But the lifestyle that caused the problem is still there. So everybody wants a life jacket uh, to stay afloat in the pond of where your body's not working quite right. And so you, you want the safest life jacket with the least side effects possible. You know, so you try the natural things first, but if they don't work, you take the drugs. Don't be silly. Take the drugs. You got to stay afloat. Don't drown. But once you're safely afloat in the pond of depression or in the pond of anxiety, once the medications are helping you function a little bit more, you don't stay in the pond. Swim over to the side of the pond. Get out of the water. Walk up the hill. Walk back up the river and find out what fell in the river that carries you downstream and eventually into the pond of depression or the pond of recurrent miscarriages or the pond of, in the pond of diabetes. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You have to go upstream. You have to investigate upstream what happened here. So when you have elevated antibodies to cerebellum, as an example, if that comes back in the neural zoomer, you have to ask the question, where is that coming from? And that's one that I can answer because I did 316 consecutive patients. Everyone that came into my office, this was in 1997. Everyone that came into my office had this blood test done. And it was a very comprehensive blood test, IgA, IgG, IgM, to uh, uh, a number of different factors of uh, milk and, and dairy and milk butyrophilins and gluteomorphins and gluten uh, corn, soy, eggs, cerebellum, myelin basic protein, ganglioside,s uh, a very comprehensive test. 68% of everyone that came into my office from two years old to 90 years old, didn't matter what their complaint was, we ran this test on them, 68% of them had elevated antibodies to a peptide of wheat. That's almost seven out of 10 people that came in for anything. Their immune system was fighting wheat. Of those that were fighting wheat, 26% of them had elevated antibodies to cerebellum. 22% of them had elevated antibodies to myelin basic protein. This is a lot of people that have elevated antibodies to their brain. And when you get them gluten-free and dairy-free if that was necessary, the antibodies to cerebellum come down. The antibodies to myelin start coming down. It's molecular mimicry that we talked about earlier. It's just this molecular mimicry with wheat and with dairy. And so you have to go upstream. You have to figure out why this thing is happening. We don't have a shotgun treatment approach. My, my message to the world is you have to get a life jacket to stay afloat. You know, try the natural antidepressants first. And if they don't work, take the pharmaceuticals short term while you're trying to figure out what's going on here and go upstream. 
to find out what happened to me, what fell in the river when I was a kid, or it may be how the birth process with your mother, that it was a natural childbirth, but she was unable to breastfeed. And so you didn't get colostrum in the first three to five days of life. So the microbiota in your gut is really the microbiota of the, the um, uh, uh, it's not fueled properly. It didn't get the nutrients it needed. Or if you had a C-section, you don't have mom's microbiota because you didn't come down the birth canal. And, you may, and then you have the microbiota of the surgery, surgery room that you were born in. Uh, and your body thinks that's normal. And but that's Mrs. Patient probably has something to do with why you had irritable bowel syndrome in your teenage years and your 20s and why now in your 30s you've been diagnosed with colitis is because your gut never got a chance to start in life correctly. Mm. So you, you have to go back upstream to figure out where's this coming from. Sounds like the functional medicine timeline. So exactly. Yeah, looking for that root cause. Exactly. And that can be so different in everybody. So um, I like it. It sounds like you've got a, a nice approach with some diagnostics, with some basic principle, principles around nutrition, and then to go deeper depending on what that person has been confronted with throughout their lives. Exactly right. Yeah. This this is great. You know, I, I feel like... Um, you know, Dr. Dale Bredesen came out with uh, his wonderful approach looking at Alzheimer's disease through his lens. And now I feel like with your book, You Can Fix Your Brain, it is you have your unique approach, your window into how to heal the brain, looking at many different factors. And I, I think everybody can tap into this in some way. So, Tom, how do people find your book? How do they find you? And how do you want them to be in touch with you? Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, the book is um, uh, you, you Can Fix Your Brain. And if you go to the doctor.com, the dr.com, uh, don't spell the word doctor out, just the dr.com forward slash you can fix your brain book. There it is. And you can click on where you want to get it Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, BAM or Google Play, uh, but then you get a bunch of handouts. You know, we send you a lot of other stuff. I mean, a anybody can go to Barnes & Noble and get it or go on Amazon and get it. Uh, if you go to the doctor.com forward slash you can fix your brain book, um, there are a number of handouts for you, including there's a handout, um, uh, Dr. Tom's Pantry Essentials. And how do, how do you... Um, uh, stock your pantry. What are the things you have to be careful of? Because as we all know, we're learning the uh, uh, the hidden sources of things like wheat and, and high amounts of sugar that you just don't know by reading the label uh, uh, how many hidden sources there are. So um, these things are there for you. Uh, so you can go to the dr.com forward slash you can fix your brain book or you can go straight to Amazon either way. Perfect. And uh, just to close, I'm kind of curious about you personally. What is uh, one thing that you do every day to protect your brain? Uh, well, uh, the first thing that comes up in my mind is take my fish oils. That's always an essential. You have to have the raw material there. But um, I had some personally really difficult news yesterday morning, and it rocked my world. And it just rocked me. And, and uh, uh, I was caught. I was really caught by it, and uh, uh, I called my wife, and uh, she's in Europe right now, and 
And uh, I waited until she came back. She went to a performance. <laughs> she was at the Coliseum in Verona yesterday, and she saw, and they did Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, my. In the Coliseum. Nice. <laughs> How unbelievable. Magnificent. Would that be? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't want to call it beforehand. And uh, so I was just doing, and I just couldn't get out of this funk. You know, I just couldn't. And I called her, and I, you know, I told her what had happened, and her boat was rocked also and and uh uh she said well what are we going to do here how are we going to handle this and i said you know i know in the big picture it's going to be okay but i really want to indulge in whining so i just whined for a couple minutes with her you know i i had a sounding board that i could whine with and she just laughed and laughed and so then i started laughing and then, you know, I still have to deal with this problem, which is uh, a major problem for me. But uh, I, I, I have a different attitude now. You know, so everything that we have to deal with in life, there's a reason why it's there. You know, there's a lesson to be learned. And yeah. uh, for me, the more I indulge in my yabba, yabba, yabba mind and go back to my childhood ways of dealing with stress and, you know, the, uh, the ways we learn to survive and if I do that, then I stay caught. And But, you know, we're adults, and we've got control over how we think and how we look at things. So uh, I took, I, I did the five deep breaths, you know. I just took five. It was really hard. I didn't want to. Oh. <laughs> one, one. You know, I, I love your authenticity here, Tom. This is great. You know, it, it really does get back to awareness. You know, you, yes, it does. You just stated what you needed in the moment, and it's so nice to hear of your humility and your humanness. You know, the fact oh, of like, you. it's okay to whine. It's okay to let those things out, and then you move on. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. You know, that's why I'm sharing this for all the listeners, is that nobody's perfect. No. You know, and if you, if you can accept that, I remember... The first consultant I ever hired to help me learn how to open a business, you know, open a practice so that we could pay the bills and all that. The first guy, I remember he said this, and it never never left me, says, it's okay to be stuck in the mud. It's not okay to wallow in it. Oh. You know, and so, you know, if you're stuck in the mud, you know, I'm just, nah, 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 nah. you know, but as soon as there was an opening to let go of it, you know, and try and take a few deep breaths, and um, it was pretty funny, and then I just started laughing. And so um, uh, we're all going to come up against obstacles that are overwhelming, and we don't know what to do. We're all going to have that happen um, many days in our lives. So how do you handle that? And my message is, one for this one about the brain, and it's elaborating the book a lot, one hour a week, Mrs. Patient. Just give it one hour a week to learn something new about your brain. I'm going to go back and listen to a podcast I heard with Dr. Deanna a while ago. And you're just going to listen to that again. You're going to hear something new. Or I'm going to read a little more of O'Brien's book. Or I'm going to look and see how do I get rid of my Tupperware containers and find glass containers. Where am I going to find glass containers? So you go to MilesKimball.com you know, or, or you go to Amazon. And you, but it takes you a while to do that. So when you do that... That's it. You know, you're done uh, for the week. You've done something that's going to have a profound, subtle impact on your family's health. There's going to be less, less plastic in the food that you eat because you aren't using Tupperware or plastic wrap anymore. You know, as you learn these things, this is going to take a while. And six months down the road, 
you've got it. You've got it. And you know that you're doing things to protect your family and your brain's working at a level that it hasn't worked at in years. Small steps with a ripple through effect, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, Tom, this has been great. Such sage advice, words of wisdom, and uh, I have great appreciation for you and all that you're doing. So thanks for sharing a little bit of a, um, a mini pre-course here on your book, and uh, I'm excited for you to have that book out there. I, I noticed some pl- splashes of color, and uh, the book looks beautiful, so congratulations. I actually thought about you. I thought about you. <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, oh, it's beautiful. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I'm sure that we're all going to uh, let's everybody explore it, um, take a peek at it and, and get it and try to implement just what Dr. Tom is saying, you know, one small step and eventually that can become a significant lifestyle change. Yes. Yes. Thanks again so much for taking your time and it's uh, been great having this conversation with you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>